We're going to be on the last page of 2 Thessalonians today. We're going to finish up our study. And um, I'll tell you, it's an interesting study. Paul, he's going to address a problem that has risen up in the church, and it provides for us a case study of sorts. And he's going to instruct the church how to work through a serious problem with a group of believers and these believers, they're threatening the health of the church, and they're also threatening the testimony of Christ in the community. So there's a problem, there's a response to the problem, and then he's going to end with a blessing. And so I want to read uh, beginning in verse 6 of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'm just going to read to the end, and then we'll come back and we'll talk through it, and we'll... Um, well, seek to apply it in the life of the church. How, how are we to, to be instructed by Paul um, in the midst of this passage? And so, here it is, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning verse 6. Here's how it goes. He says, Now we command you, brothers, or brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away... From any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. That's funny. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you'd help us this morning, that you'd Take the truth of this passage and, Father, one, make it plain, and then, Father, make it apply. We, we want to come away understanding um, your truth for us as a church this morning. And so we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. 
Well, so there's a problem, there's the response to the problem, and then there's going to be a blessing. But let's look at what the problem is, and it begins there in verse 6. And what Paul's addressing is he's addressing a Christian work ethic. And so the ethic simply goes like this. Listen, as a believer, you should be a worker. In fact, you should be a hard worker. You should be really, you know, you should seek to do well at your job. You should seek to have a good reputation. You should care about the things that you are engaged in. Work and make a living and have enough to support your family. And the idea is to be a blessing that you, that the, that which you have left over, you would, you would use to, to bless others with. Support yourself, bless others. That's the ethic. That's the New Testament ethic for believers. Now, look at verse 6. He says, now, I command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would keep away from any brother who's not doing that, who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Paul said, we taught you. We, we uh, brought God's Word to you. We we um, painted a picture for you what it looks like to live the Christian life and to live in this Christian community. And so he's circling back to this issue that he'd addressed, and he addressed it when he, when he was with them and he, and he taught them. He also addressed it in the first letter to the Thessalonians, which is like probably in the timeline, he sent the first letter about six months, maybe nine or 12 months before this letter. So the two letters, and they happen pretty close together, but he already addressed it in the first letter. Just listen to this. In, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says it this way, we should aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, and to work with your, your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. He goes on in the next chapter and he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Admonish the idle. Say to the people who are idle, who are not working, say to them, stop doing that. Get a job. Provide for your family. That's all this. So we don't know, listen, we don't know exactly the reason for the idleness, all right? What, what the origin of it is. I mean, it could be something that was uh, cultural in the Greek culture. There's good reason to believe, however, that it was related to the frenzy of what was going on in Thessalonica about the theology of the return of the Lord. If you remember, that's why Paul writes these two letters is because they had some confusion about, okay, when is the Lord going to come back? When's this going to happen? Did we miss the return of the Lord? Are we in the middle of the tribulation? Well, what is exactly going on here? And it appears that there were some people that thought, well, listen, the Lord, he's about to come back any day, so we shouldn't have to work. And so they got their lawn chairs and they got some coolers and they just sat out in the front of their trailer park homes and they were waiting for the Lord to come back. No, there's nothing wrong with living in a trailer park home. But they were just sitting around all day long laughing at all the people that were going to work, all the people that were 
investing their time in this day and age and with these things that seem so silly now because the skies are about to open up and Jesus is about to descend. So we're just going to sit here and we're going to wait for it. The problem is that lunch would roll around and they didn't have any lunch. And so they would go and they'd try to rustle up lunch from their friends and from the people they go to church with. And they're like, hey, is that lunch? And it became really awkward. People would see them coming and think, oh, man, what are we supposed to do? And then they're trying to apply the theology. They know, well, we're Christians. We're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to care for each other's needs. I guess that means we're to invite these people who are willing to do nothing to come and eat the food and share of the resources that we're working so hard to provide for our family. That, that's what's going on here. And so Paul's trying to, to address this because it is something that has become really disruptive in the church. It's threatening the health of the church and all the relationships. And it's threatening the witness of the church into the community. It's not going to be long before people look around and go, man, that's a weird group of people. Like half of them work and half of them sit in lawn chairs. I don't understand it. So this is what's going on. Now, here's a litmus test. Here's one of the things that you can, um, you can count on. You can bank on it. You can write it down because it's always true. If these people had had good theology, all right, good theology does not lead to bad behavior. Okay? Theology, right theology. It's not the basis. You don't take theology. You don't take some belief. You don't take some doctrine like the return of the Lord and use that as the basis to justify behavior that is wrong. You don't get to do that with theology. You don't get to do that with your understanding about God. You don't get to say, okay, I understand this or I'm coming to an understanding about God in this way. And so, because of that, it justifies this wrong or errant behavior that I'm engaged in. And I'm sure you can think of all the armchair theology that goes on in the world to justify really bad and terrible behavior. Now, let me make this one uh, note here. Let me make sure we're clear. Paul is not talking about people who, who cannot work or who who want to work and can't find work. He's talking about people who will not work. Neither Paul nor I am heartless about this, all right? This is a choice. This isn't a person who, who wants 
to work but, but, um, but can't find work or is going through a difficult season. I mean, right? Sometimes when it rains, it pours. And it's the privilege and the high calling of the church to come alongside brothers and sisters that are in need. I mean, the ministry of benevolence is an honor for the church to participate in. We want to do that. This is, um, this is one of the great things we get to do as a church, is to come alongside folks who, man, for a season or because of a particular circumstance or, or a hardship that comes along or an unemployment that is prolonged to come alongside and say, you know, we, this is what we do. We, we want to help each other meet our needs. This is not that. This is an exploiting of the system. And it's also, let me hear you, it's not about a paycheck. Listen, um, it, it's, it's about those who can but do not. And they're draining the church. So, Paul, he's going to give a command. And in all of Paul's uses of this word command, where he says, look, now we command you. A third of the time that Paul uses that word command happened in this chapter of 2 Thessalonians. He'd already addressed it with a teaching. He'd already addressed it with a warning. Now he issues a command. And the behavior of justifying bad behavior with bad theology, the command, it's more, notice, it's more than an apostolic command. It's a command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's as strong as it gets, okay? The other thing to notice at the same time is he addresses all of these people as brothers, or brothers and sisters. Paul's addressing this to the church community. And this would include the offenders as well as those that are offended. Listen, as, as frustrating as the situation may be, it's not out of frustration that Paul's going to address the matter. This is, this is a matter between believers, brothers and sisters. This is a family. And so, love is going to be Paul's guide as he instructs the church. Not retribution, not revenge, not just deserts. I mean, love. And love is seeking another's highest possible good. That's what it means to love somebody. And so, he's going to instruct the church, and he's going to instruct them in the area of discipline. How does a church correct the behavior of those who are in error? And this can be such a challenge. It can be hard to know what to do, and it's certainly hard to do it well. And in the setting of family, which is the way Paul frames this, it's got to be bathed in love. The, the purpose is not to punish, but to redeem and to bring about repentance and restoration. So, notice though the word he uses. Verse 6 again, he says this, we command you brothers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from those that are idle. The word means avoid them. Stand aloof. Maybe it means shun them for a while. 
I mean, that's kind of hard, isn't it? I mean, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul's word is keep away from them. And here's the reason. Their behavior is disruptive. It's sowing discord and uh, disorder. Their behavior is threatening the well-being of the body of Christ. In verse 11, he, you know, he describes them as busybodies. People with time on their hands, and they're using that time to stir people up in ways that are unhealthy and disruptive. What this means, it's interesting, is he's not calling for them to be kicked out of the church. They're not being excommunicated. They're not being treated as enemies or non-believers. They are, however, kept at an arm's length. They are given a cold shoulder. And this is not passive-aggressive, that they are to know full well why they are being made to feel unwelcome. Let's come back to this in a minute. I'll let that discomfort kind of sit over the room for a second. And I know some of you are thinking, okay, is this about me? Am I about to get the cold shoulder from the people in my church? No, not, not necessarily, all right? Um, but if you do feel that way, come and talk to Todd about it, and he'll tell you why, all right? <laughs> now, Paul's going to do some things. He's going to say, okay, look, I'm commanding you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the body of Christ. This is how you are to respond to those people who are being idle and disrupting the church. And then he's going to provide an example, this sort of his past example. He's going to point to how he was when he was with them, when he came into Thessalonica. Look at verses 7. In 8 and 9, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. You, you know, we provided you an example, an example to follow, and evidently an example to follow in lots of areas of life. Paul, Paul we're new to Christianity. We don't know how to act. Paul says, that's great. That's fine. Follow me. Watch what I do and do the things I do. This will be helpful to you. And so he's pointing to, this is also an area that you can look into my life and imitate me. He says, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right. And he's talking about there the, the right to be supported by the church. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. That's why we did what we did. So if you want to imitate what I'm talking about, he says, think back to how I was when I was with you. When Paul and Silas and Timothy were with them, they showed up in Thessalonica and determined right from the beginning that they weren't going to be a burden to the people that they showed up to bring the gospel to. They wanted to be a blessing. They didn't want to be a burden. That was the goal. That they didn't want anybody to be able to say, oh yeah, well, Paul and his crew, they rolled into town. You know, they're teachers with a message. But what they really came here to do is they were looking for handouts. That they didn't want the message of the gospel and their motive for preaching that gospel to be confused 
with how the other teachers of the day were operating, those people who were peddling ideas and teaching for profit. And so here's what they did. They paid for the food that they ate. They, they didn't show up and expect handouts. They, they worked hard. Toil is the word. They did it day and night. So the picture is at the end of the day, after teaching or counseling or answering questions, and that's what happens. P people are interested and they have questions and Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were available. And then after all that, they'd go back to wherever it is they were staying. They'd settle in, and then they'd work with their hands into the night, probably working with some leather. Maybe they'd spend some time making a tent. And then, you know, and then they'd head the next morning, they'd head to the market, and they'd sell it, or they'd trade it for food. And, and the point is they didn't want to be a burden to these people. They wanted to bless them. It didn't mean, in verse 9, they didn't have the right to support. They were spending their days serving the spiritual needs of the people, but the church was brand new. It was just beginning. He didn't want to be misconstrued. He, he didn't want his motive to be misunderstood. He wanted, he wanted to take away any possible uh, accusation that his ministry team was there to pray on the people in Thessalonica. So Paul says, see, that this is an example to follow. Believers, we exist by the grace of God to be a blessing, not a burden. We contribute. We don't exploit. We, we want to earn the right to be heard with the people that we're living around and in the midst of. And if people avoid us, there will always be those people, you know. We want them to avoid us because it's about the gospel. We don't want them to avoid us because when they see us, they know we're always out wanting something from them. That's what he means. Verse 10, he points to this previous command. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. This is what we commanded you. We'd say this all the time. And, and it's kind of this proverbial statement. We made it really easy. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. I like that. It's a command. It's in the form of a proverb. It's extremely practical. Extremely. Now listen, it's hard for us to understand how close poverty was for most people in the ancient world. I mean, we live with so much abundance that we really have little context for the idea of poverty as it's talked about then. I mean, for starters, if you missed a couple of meals in the ancient world, the pains of hunger would be severe. Rarely did you ever eat to indulge the way that we're accustomed to. I mean, food sustained your life then. We eat for pleasure. It's a huge difference. The other is we all have reserves, lots of them, more than we realize, more than we know. You know, we were wildly wealthy by the history of the world's standards. We have abundance. But back then, you could literally go from from being fed to poverty to death in the span of a week or two. 
in the ancient world. So Paul's drawing upon, hey, look, there are consequences. If you, if you, if you can work and you won't work, you can get a job, but you decide that you don't want a job, that you can provide for your family, but you're not going to provide for your family, then let's let the natural consequences do its work. I mean, there's nothing like hunger, missing a few meals. That the guy decides, he goes, well, I think I'm going to eat today. So I need to work. But Paul's drawing on this tradition of God's people in the tradition of lots of cultures. But the Proverbs are real clear about it. The Proverbs talk about people uh, that, are, that are like this, that are similar. In Proverbs 12, it says, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Work your land. Do your job. You'll have plenty. Proverbs 20, verse 4, that you reap what you sow. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. If you don't plow and plant your seed, when the harvest time comes, you won't have anything. In Proverbs 22, it talks about how work, it, the, 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 our work and our excellence in our work, it earns us the right to be heard with those in whom we work for and work with. And he says, uh, Proverbs 22, do you see a man skillful in his work? We'll stand before kings. There's much to respect about this. So Paul, he, he's going to give this response to what it is that he's heard, in verse 11 and 12. He says, for we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. He'd heard the reports, things that had not gotten better since he taught about it when he was there, since he wrote about it in the first letter. They'd gotten worse. The church was being threatened. And so Paul's words here are aimed at not enabling or supporting bad behavior. Listen, as a church, we have to be diligent periodically about not supporting or encouraging or enabling bad behavior in the midst of the church that threatens the health and the unity of the church. But Paul doesn't want the bad behavior to hold everybody else in the church hostage. Paul wants to see the error set right. He wants them to cease from being idle. It's a funny way to say that. He wants them to get to work, work quietly, earn a living. And if they won't, he instructs the church on a course of action. Look at verse 13. As for you, brothers... 
Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with them, that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It's a further explanation of what he said in verse 6 when he told them to keep away. So, so verse 13, it's an encouragement to the rest of the church. Don't get discouraged. And don't let what those people are doing be contagious. You, you stay the course. Keep doing what's good. Keep, keep doing it. But notice, Paul, he, he's calling those who are idle to change their behavior. That's what the word obey means. It means, first of all, uh, it implies the bound up in the word to obey includes, first of all, you've got to listen. You have to hear what's being said, and then you answer what's being said with your life. You adjust your life accordingly. And if they won't, put them on a list. Take note of that person. Make a note. Make it known. This isn't shadow talk or secretiveness. This is, this is not gossip about someone. Behavior's been identified. It's been sought out for the purpose of correction. That correction has been ignored. It has been disregarded. And so at this point, it's rebellion. It's against the Lord. It's against his word. It's against the brothers and sisters of Christ. It's, it's offensive. It's disruptive. And so Paul's words here are specific about how we disregard disobeyers in the church, or we regard them by disregarding them. He's not instructing us on how we deal with the world here, okay? This isn't how we respond to those that are outside of the church. This is in response to those that are in the church who we call brothers and sisters in Christ. They are part of the church. This is the benefit, by the way, real quick, let me say this. This is the benefit of being a member of a church. Now, I know some of you, I mean, good Bible church people um, are some of my favorite people and some of the most frustrating people. Okay? And I don't mean frustrated in a bad way. That's fine. I, I deserve to, listen, I, of anybody in this room, deserve to be frustrated here and there. But good Bible, you know, I always hear from good Bible church people, well, I don't see where the New Testament talks about membership. And, you know, and I'm like, I know. You're right. And I usually say something snarky like it doesn't mention the Trinity either, but we believe that. Um, you know, church membership in our day and age, here's what it is. It's, a, it's you submitting to a leadership of a church. It's you coming under the authority and the covering of another group of people. It's you simply saying about yourself, you know what? I'm, I'm in Christ, I'm, I want to grow in Christ, but I realize there's an old self that likes to rear its ugly head. I can walk, you know, in the flesh and not in the spirit all the time, that I want to be accountable to a group of people. I want to be under the covering of a group of people. I want people who are 
uh, spiritual and wise and seeking the Lord. I want them to have a covering over my life. That is the safest place for me to be in this world is accountable to brothers and sisters in Christ, not all on my own. I want to be someone who does more than keep his own counsel. And so membership is in a sense saying, you know what? I want to I want to do that. I'm, I'm in my sober, my right mind. I love the Lord. I love my family. I want, to, I want to be held accountable to that. So that when you are an idiot, we'll come get you. We will. We'll call you. We'll pursue you. We'll say, hey, don't you remember? You... This isn't who you are. This isn't what you want to do. These aren't the decisions you want to make. And so, man, we chase after you. And as elders and leaders of the church and people in your small group, and we, we love you, so we're going to run after you. Now, let me just be super practical about this. If you are not a member of the church, meaning you haven't said, you know what, I, I want to do membership and, and I want to put myself under that covering and that authority, then, then when that happens in your life, we are less likely to run after you and pursue you. If you have not come and said, hey, we, we want to be under this. And the reason we don't, I'll tell you, I'll tell you very practically the reason we don't. There are gaggles of lawsuits against churches who have operated outside of a covenant of membership and have pursued people very biblically and with all the right intentions and all the right motives, those that have not officially joined as a member and part of the church, and then that person turns around and sues the church for getting in the middle of their business and doing all these things. And churches win more than they don't win, but they spend lots of energy and resources fighting those things in court. It's a pretty terrible reason not to do something, but it's a very practical reason. Stewardship of resources. Why, why church membership? See, most people think of church membership. Well, so I can vote on stuff. Well, we've taken care of that. You only vote on like three things here. And none of, you know, they're important things, but you don't get the, I mean, it's very little, you know, you, nobody's Facebooking, you know, oh yeah, today I get to vote on, you know, I mean, they're not Facebook worthy things. Important. But I mean, membership is about putting yourself under the, the care, the watch care, Acts 20, Hebrews 13, saying to the elders, I want you to watch over my soul for me, my family. So the church, a family, it needs leadership and structure and authority and have this deal. I, Warren Wiersbe uh, did this great thing, outlined all the different various levels of church discipline. 
and how they're to be distinguished. And so I just real quickly, let me walk through them. I'm not going to go through all this because I don't have the time, but there, there is, if you, you know, if there's personal differences between Christians, how do you handle that conflict? Well, the Bible's good and clear about that. You can go to Matthew 18. You can go to Philippians chapter 4. If a brother or sister, you know, sins against me or I sin against them, whether I deliberately did it or unknowingly did it, we go to that person, we seek to settle it, you know, in private, and if, and if that doesn't work, then we, you know, we bring in one or two other people. If that doesn't work, we, we may bring in the elders or, you know, um, but the goal, we're not trying to win an argument against somebody. We're trying to restore a relationship. So, the Bible's clear. How do we deal with the personal differences that arise between believers? And that happens all the time, by the way. How do we deal with doctrinal error? You know, you determine what's being taught, why that's being taught. Perhaps it's out of ignorance or lack of understanding. And any way you, you examine it, you confront it, you say, don't do that. And if the error continues, you separate yourself. 2 Timothy 2, Titus 1, Galatians 2, all that's real clear. What about believers who are overtaken with sin? Well, Galatians chapter 3, the, the, the apostle Peter, he denies the Lord. David, he yielded to lust and committed adultery. When the, when the sinner is caught into, the Christians caught in sin, spiritual members of the church must seek them out, restore them with gentleness and love, you know, to, uh, to restore, to, to set like a broken bone. And, and there's tenderness and there's patience and not passing judgment right off. You seek to restore them. What about the troublemaker, the person who stirs up division, Titus 3? Well, it's real clear. Those people who stir up division, they get a grand total of two official warnings. So, what Titus 3 says, you go, you warn them. They go, oh, okay, you, you know, you're right. They turn around, they do the same thing again. You warn them again. And if they will not cease to cause division and strife in the third time, they're out. It's open immorality, 1 Corinthians 5. Here, the case of the, of the lazy or the idle saints. And Paul is instructing them, listen, Obedient saints, you have to treat those that are causing disruption and disorder, those that are being disobedient, aren't following God's plan in a way that's disruptive. The friendship with them changes. The interaction with them changes. The time spent with them changes. Not because we try to punish them, but because we want them to get the point that's not acceptable in our midst. And your bad behavior is not going to hold us hostage. We don't want this to be contagious. 
And so that's fine. If you want to sit in a lawn chair in front of your home and wait for the return of the Lord and not work, that's fine. Just don't come to my house for lunch anymore. Because I'm going to say no. I love you, but no. And you're going to get the same response from everybody else in here. Because we love you and your brother. We want you to be restored and get a job and we'll help you get back on your feet and do all those things. But no, you are not going to exploit us. We love you too much to let you do that. So then what Paul does is he ends with a blessing. Now may the Lord of peace, verse 16, the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. And the Lord be with you. Peace. The right relationship with God. You know, being in right relationship, it brings this calm to the soul. And he says at all times, in every way, peace when it comes to doctrinal issues and peace when it comes to relational issues in everything. All times, in every way. It's comprehensive. Every single problem we encounter, we can cast ourselves on the mercy of our Savior and trust Him for peace, and it means not always the circumstantial change. Oftentimes, it's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's supernatural peace that can't be fully explained from a human standpoint, but it's experienced nonetheless. And I'm writing this with my hand. You know that it's me. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Grace and peace began this letter. Grace and peace closed the letter. Divine grace. The granting to you of that which you do not deserve. Paul blesses them with it. Let me say this morning, that's how we want to end this letter. That's how we want to end this study. That's how we want to end this morning is grace. We're hard after pursuing that in our own lives and in the lives of each other. If you're here this morning, you've never received it. You've never, you've never come to understand that what God has done for you is far beyond anything you could ever deserve. Then we want you to accept that this morning. And that is the gift of his son, Jesus, the, the sacrifice of his life for our sin. His death that we deserved and then his being raised from the dead and resurrection to new life. And he offers that to you. You can receive that this morning. Grace. That's the gospel. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you'd take this, these truths from the end of Thessalonians where Paul's dealing with a really specific issue and a really practical issue in the life of the church that, that was being threatened by a few people. And his instruction to the body of Christ and Father, the boldness and the courage for them to walk into that. Father, I pray that as a church you would grant us wisdom. You would Continue to raise up leaders and 
elders and men and women who, who we can imitate and we can follow and other we, we put ourselves in accountability to. So that fathers, they, they have this watch care over our souls and our lives. That you grant us the humility to be able to, to listen to them when they instruct us. Father, for the pride that in each one of us and in this room, I pray, Father, your grace and your peace would just smother that this morning. That we'd find our hearts melting before you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit.